Reis. Welcome to another edition of Truth and Rhythm, brought to you by FunkinSlift.net. This is the interview show that gets deep in the pocket with contemporary music's foremost masters of the groove. I'm your host, Scott Dr. Jake Skolfein, musicologist and author of Everything is on the One, the first guy to funk. If you don't have your copy, get on over to Amazon and pick one up. You'll be so glad you did. Whether you're watching the video version of this at FunkinStuff.net or on YouTube or listening to the audio-only podcast version from providers like iTunes and Spotify, as always, I thank you so much for your continued interest and support in the show. Speaking of which, if you haven't already done so, subscribe to the Funkin' Stuff channel on YouTube. That's where Truth and Rhythm lives. All kinds of goodies you'll get, uh, early premieres, and it's all free, so make sure you sign up. Tell a friend, tell family. Also get your official Truth and Rhythm and Funkin' Stuff gear at the FunkinStuff.net store. Cool stuff like I'm wearing right here, Truth and Rhythm shirts, Show your support and love of the show and also the musicians and the music that they represent. Um, also want to give a shout out to the Funk Exhibition Center and Hall of Fame in Dayton, Ohio, of which I'm very proud to be an official Funk Ambassador. Go to thefunkcenter.org to learn more and keep the funk alive. And now, with all that, it's time to get on with the show. Enjoy. I'm pleased to welcome you to the Truth and Rhythm Mothership, an original member of the Kings of Go-Go Trouble Funk. It's bassist, composer, vocalist, and composer, Big Tony Fisher. Yes, great pleasure, man. Hey, for the uninitiated, I gotta give a little background before we jump into it with you. Go-Go music originated in Washington, D.C. during the 1970s as a blend of funk, R&B, and old school hip hop with a heavy emphasis on percussion. In addition to Trouble Funk's tracks like Drop the Bomb and Pump It Up, Mainstream go-go hits included Chuck Brown, The Soul Searchers, Bustin' Loose, and EU's Debut. We're fortunate to have the man here today, Big Tony, to tell us all about it. Yes, sir. About it, about it. Thanks for joining the show. Man, thanks for having me on you. So you're coming to us, uh, we're just talking about that from the D.C. area, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. As a matter of fact, I'm in Upper Marlboro right now, and... Uh... Yeah, I'm, I'm originally from Southeast D.C., Washington, D.C., you know, uh, been raised up there most of my life, the other half, in Maryland. But it's the DMV area, so it's all D.C. bound, you know. Yeah, you know, something uh, cool for me is I actually got to D.C. for the first time in my life just a few years ago because I'm from Los Angeles, and what? now being on the East Coast, I've been exploring the East Coast, and so... I went there yes, exactly. for the first time, and man, I was impressed. It was better than I expected. Okay, that's what's that, man. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, um, and uh, how's how's your 
leg doing? I know you had a little bit of a setback. But yeah, yeah, yeah. But no, I'm, I'm healing up. You know, it's it's a process, man. Uh, they they said it's gonna take four to four to six months, but uh, now nah, I'll be back on my feet long before the end. You know, they don't know Big Tony. Yeah. You know? It's a southeast thing, man. Yeah. Well, good. <laughs> I'm glad to hear that. I was worried about you for a minute. Yeah, yeah. I'm good. I'm good. Excellent. So, Tony, let's uh, turn the time machine back a little bit and talk okay. about, you know, how did you first get into music and specifically into the bass? Oh, wow. You want to go back there? <laughs> All right, man. Well, I, I, you know, my first musical experience with an instrument, with, with an instrument was uh, I was around 11 years old, man. And um, uh, it's a fascinating story. Uh, I um, I used to live in Northwest, you know, um, up here not far, just around, I think it was like 17th and T, not far from this place, Meridian, Meridian Hill Park. Long story short, there was some high-rise apartments not far from Meridian Hill Park, and I was on my way up there, you know, walked up there, go to the park and everything, and I seen... Um, at the time, I did. I just seen a whole bunch of furniture and stuff sitting out on the street, you know. Uh, and I seen people picking through it, you know. So back then, I didn't know that someone had got evicted. I just seen a lot of what I thought was free stuff. <laughs> so uh, moving fast forward, I seen the guitar, I picked it up, and I headed back down to the house. <laughs> and uh, uh, the guy, the guy that actually got evicted was on his way up the hill while I was on my way down there. And he was like, hey, where you going with my guitar? <laughs> That's mine. <laughs> so I told him, I said, I found it on the street, you know? And uh, he was pissed, man. He was really pissed. So um, uh, he told me, he was like, yeah, I can have you arrested for this and blah, blah, blah. He was like, I guess just pissed off because the stuff is on the street. Yeah. So I was like, I gave it back to him and I was like hauling ass on back down to the house, and he called me. I said, "Oh, shit, you know." And um, he said, "Come here." I went back over there, and he's like, "Here, next time I see you, you learn how to play this guitar, or I'm taking it back." Now me, you know, being the kid and everything, I'm thinking that I'm gonna see this guy again. He gonna take this guitar, but I'm not to play it. So I go home and I I listen to music and I turn on the TV and try to imitate what I see on TV. The first song I learned how to play was Johnny Cash. I walked the line. Down, 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 down. Because I seen Johnny Cash on TV and I seen him play it. He was sitting on the stool and I just imitated what I saw and it was like real easy to me. You know, I learned how to tune a guitar from this TV show called, I think it was called The Monkees. At the end of the program, they had this thing to go, down, 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 take out the show. <laughs> and that's how I learned how to tune my guitar. Now, I know all this may sound real crazy, but it's a true story. And that was my first experience. Okay, moving fast forward. Again, my sister broke my guitar. And my mother promised to buy me another guitar for Christmas. And she did. She bought me a bass guitar which I liked a lot better than the regular guitar, you know. And she bought my brother a pair of drums uh, at this little place on 8th and 8th Street 
I, I forgot the name of the store, but later on they burned down and they became Chuck Levin's, which is like one of the biggest music stores on the East Coast, you know. Uh, they became Chuck Levin's. And, um, and uh, um, again, you know, I, I, I've been playing bass ever since, you know. And, um, and then at the age of 16, no, I'm sorry, at the age of 15, I was playing in clubs. Wow. Who are some of yeah. your early influences or heroes, uh, bass-wise? Oh, man. Well, Larry Graham is at the top, the top of my list, man. Larry Graham is like my 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 hero. Yes, like my, my bass hero, man. Sorry. My, my phone alarm went off. But Larry Graham is like, I was really into Larry Graham as Danny Clark. But you couldn't tell me I wasn't Larry Graham when I was younger. Because everything he, everything I knew about Larry Graham, I mean, I played, I sung all his stuff. You know, Shining by the highway, waking in the rain. You couldn't tell me I wasn't Larry Graham, man. But, <laughs> but uh, yeah, that's my hero. And then um, and, um, groups like Commodore, Ohio Players, and... Um, uh, you know, all those old funk groups back in the parliament, of course, you know, Barkays, those groups were a big influence, you know, on, on me as far as my musical funk background, you know. Um, so stylistically, stylistically, did you attempt to do, you know, the plucking kind of style like Graham or? Yes, yes, uh -huh. yes. Uh, that, that, that was my thing, the plucking and... Uh, and Stanley Clark, of course, it was like the solo and stuff like that, you know, all that kind of stuff there. So I was um, I was into Jocko a little bit, but he was a little too deep for me at the time. So, um, but those from a funk point of view, those were my were my funk heroes. Like I said, Larry Graham, and I and it's crazy because I I my sound man um, actually. Uh, did uh, went on tour with um, Larry Graham and what's the other guy named the other bass player, um, Marcus Miller. Uh -huh. You know what I'm saying? My, my sound man Brian West that that did sound for trouble from you know when we went on tour, and uh, he was telling me that Graham knew all about trouble Funk, and so did Marcus Miller, but I never got a chance to meet Graham, you know. And that 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 that's been one of my biggest, you know what I'm saying? I I I I, I would love to meet Graham, man. It's like my I got my six, and I'm gonna try to make that happen for my birthday. Yeah, well, I hope you do. I mean, he's still he's still out there doing it, even at his age. So yeah, man, yeah, man, he's still doing it, man. He's still my hero, man. You know, yeah. Much respect to this guy, man. Oh. Still look good. Too. Yeah. He does. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I, um, I, I, um, eventually I'm, I'm just, I'm just skipping through a lot of stuff, but you know, after playing in the clubs and stuff, I played at this club called the part three with, uh, 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 Johnny Barnes. Uh, he's a solo artist that sing a lot of Al Green and Johnny Taylor and, uh, uh Bobby Womack. And, you know, yeah, I'm 15 years old in the club playing this kind of stuff. Now, the way I got the gig, um, I was living in the projects over in Southeast. And uh, uh, and uh, I had a drummer 
that uh, this drummer that was going with one of the, the females that was uh, um, a couple of doors down from us, you know, which um, my friend Charles Cook, uh, one of his sisters, he came through and said, man, you know, you're pretty good. You should come and, you know, come over to the club and audition. I was like, man, I, you know, I, I can't get no club. I'm 15 years old. He said, I'll work that out if you get to, if you, you know, get to audition. If you pass the audition, I can work it out where it won't be a problem. So I went through there on Mondays. They would have the audition. They have like three or four bass players come through there. Audition, they tell you what songs that you got to learn. They give you a list of songs to learn, about five or six songs. And then you come back Wednesday and audition. Monday you get the songs, Wednesday you audition. And when every week I would beat them out. They used to call me Big Youngin, you know. And it's like, Big Youngin, you got the gig, you know. So that happened so many times in so many weeks. They just went on and gave me the gig permanently, you know. Everything you know, ain't no need to audition nobody else. The big young be beating them out. So they used to teach me, say, man, you made one bass player play cargo just so we can get some work, you know. So um, I did that for a while. And then um, there was this group, Trouble Band and Show. And um, I used to go see them at the um, Anacostia. They used to play outside a lot at Anacostia Park. And um, and uh, I thought it was a great group. They played the top 40s. It was like a top 40 R&B cabaret band. Is this like uh, mid or late 70s? Yeah, it was like around 76, something like that. 75, 76. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was around 75, 76, you know. And uh, I used to go see them a lot. And there was a guy named Gerald that um, I used to live in Burridge Farm, that far from where I live, and he used to come up with his good friends, and I taught him how to play, and girl messed around and got the gig for trouble, and I was like, how in the hell did he get this gig, you know what I'm saying, like, but anyway, they wind up firing Jerome, and the word was out, the guitar player knew me, um, Mike, um, uh, Michael Anderson, the guitar player Michael Anderson for Trouble Band and Show, they, um, he told Rio, which was the founding manager, of um, Trouble Band and Show. He told Rio about me and he's like, man, this is the guy that taught Gerald how to play, blah, blah, blah. So one day Rio came over and knocked on my door and uh, asked me, did I want to get Yeah, I was like, sure, why not? So man, I had something like 27 tunes to learn in a week. Were they uh, playing originals or covers? or No, or- no. The, the Dyke and I, um, um, Robert Reed, we, we always played together. Me, Dyke, and Taylor, we always played in certain bands together out, outside of the gig that I had at Part 3. So we had little groups that we played. It wasn't serious. I mean, just, you know, little basement bands and get together and we a gig and, you know, do maybe a little something outside here and there. But yeah, it was just for the love of it. We'd pack the stuff up in the car and, you know, some of boot the stuff, you know, in somebody's backyard and get together and jam, you know. But Dyke and I, we were always original. We always created original music. You know what I'm saying? So when I got when I got with Trouble Band and Show, Dyke didn't come right over. Cause I was always used to following him. 
So I was like, you know what? I'm going to make a move on my own for a change. So Dyke wind up following me. He came over about maybe three weeks later after I got there, you know, to trouble band the show. So when, when Dyke came and then Taylor came right after Dyke, that's when we started influencing some of the originality that we had on the band. Mm-hmm. You know, we had started influencing some of the originality on the band. So uh, we still play top 40s, but uh, the way we came about to, to start doing like some serious original stuff is that we played at this place called the Club to Burn. Um, I think this is somewhere like around 77. We played this place called the Club to Burn. We did a cabaret there. And uh, after the cabaret, there was another another show. And um, when we broke down, everybody was leaving. And I seen this long line up the side of the building. So I went in there and I asked the guy that owned the joint at the time, which was Ted Hawkins. I said, man, where is that line for? The show is over. He said, no, we're getting ready to do a new show. Um, we got the Go-Go. You know, we got the Go-Go show coming up. Um, Chuck Ronnie Soul Surgeons is playing. That was my first experience, you know what I'm saying, with hearing Chuck Brown, period. I heard about him. And uh, I asked him, I said, man, you mind if I stay and check it out? He said, cool, no problem. And um, I was about, I think I was about 17 years old. Yeah, and uh, at this time, um, uh, so I stayed there, and it's like I noticed Chuck Brown was playing a lot of top forties, but in between the top forties, he was playing this beat, this really cool funky beat, you know. And I was like, man, I like that. That's you know, it was something about that. I connected instantly with that beat, you know. So moving fast forward. We used to rehearse at this place called the Coffee Shop on Minnesota Avenue, and uh, and the guy that owned the coffee shop, he'd come in there every now and then, drunk and you know, raising up. Yeah, I gotta get the hell out of here with all that noise and blah blah. <laughs> so this went on for a minute. Rio. So one day Rio just got tired, cussed the guy out, packed all the stuff up. We had nowhere to go. So I made the suggestion. I said, man, why don't we go talk to the guy up there that owned the club, The Burn? And um, and at the time, we knew that he was looking for an opening act for Chuck Brown. I said, why don't we talk to the guy and see if we can get um, some rehearsal days there of, 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 on his off days in exchange for opening up the Chuck. So he's like, what the hell? You know, tried it. We went up there, and he was like, yeah. So what happened was, he said, not only can you rehearse here on off days, we're going to pay you such, such amount of money to open up, you know, the job. So that was a win-win, man. So, um, so we thought. Um, up until we started getting our ass kicked every week, you know. <laughs> so we would, we would perform, and we was playing a lot of the same music Chuck was playing. But I found out later the difference between what we were doing versus what Chuck was doing is like we would stop and go into another song. People was looking at us like we was from some out of out of space some somewhere, man. It's like they just stood there li- looking, and after a while, they just like started walking around like we didn't even exist. 
Um, this went on for about, I don't know, almost two months. And uh, Chuck Brown would come on and the drummer, Rick, would hit the damn bang, hit the cymbal, and everybody's rushed to the, to the foot of the stage. Just from out of nowhere, it's like, just packed in. And uh, and they get to Holland. Chuck ain't played one one tune yet. He just scratching his side. Zack, 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 Zack. And then even back then, right now to this day, they still hollering, wind me up, Chuck. Way back then, they was on a wind me up, Chuck. <laughs> and Chuck would be say, "What well, y'all? Talk to me quick now." Now, this is Chuck back in the seventies. And all of a sudden, the drummer. I'm gonna thank you so much for coming out tonight. Blah blah, you know how Chuck do, you know. And uh, by this time, the band that went home, I stayed there because it's like I'm trying to figure out what is it that they're doing that we ain't doing, you know. I I've always had a very competitive spirit nature about myself, and it's like I hate to be all done. <laughs> so so I did this thing there for I I sit on the sideline and watch. Chuck and tried to figure out what was going on for a good little while. What was the connection between Chuck, the crowd, and the, the drummer? You know what I'm saying? It's like, um, it was that beat. I figured out that it was that beat in between the songs that kept them on the floor. You know what I'm saying? And the way that he made his transition from one song to that beat to another song, you know what I'm saying? Uh, it just... It, just, it was like hypnotic, you know. And then that beat, when they when they rest and go into that beat, that gives Chuck Brown a chance to get intimate with the crowd, you know what I'm saying, and talk to them and make them feel like they're part of what's going on. Mm -hmm. I figured all this stuff out. So one day at rehearsal, I went to Rio. I said, Rio, um, I think I know what it takes to make these people dance. But... Oh, that was another important thing. I didn't have a mic. He hired me as a bass player. He didn't know anything about it. I had singing capabilities or whatever. So I told him, I said, man, I'm going to need a microphone, you know, um, to uh, pull this thing off. Real say, what the hell? We tried everything else. You know, because the band, they was like pointing the finger at each other, you know, as of who's the reason why they didn't get the crowd respond like they, like, we were supposed to and all that. So they're arguing, fighting, and go home and leave me there. And I'm just trying to figure out what's going on. Who was doing your lead singing at that point? My drummer. Rick was the lead singer. Oh, the that drummer. makes it hard. Yeah. Rick Nixon was the lead singer. He was the lead singer and the music director. Mm. And uh, so what happened was Rio was like, okay, you know, y'all listen up. We didn't try everything else. So Tony said that he wanted to give it a shot. So I need y'all to listen to Tony. We're going to try it his way. Now, and uh, Rick was like, nah, I'm the music director. I'm not listening to him. So Rio told Rick, they, you either listen to Tony or you take your ass on. <laughs> <laughs> so Rick was sitting over there pouting this. He was looking at me with the, with, hit me with the super grit. That's where that song came from, super grit. Hit him with the super grit. Hit him with the super grit. He was over there mean mugging me. 
Man, I, I ain't listening to this. <laughs> but uh, anyway, the first song that Dyke and I had um, arranged was actually a flute. We call ourselves playing. Um, we call ourselves playing uh, Trans Europe Express. Craftwork, yeah. Yeah, and we stumbled up on another groove called it Roll With It. Yeah. Um, so the song was like, that was our first live original song. And that song right there got the people up. So Rick used to do some really fancy stuff in the beginning uh, of every show. Rick would open up the show and, and go into the beat. But I was like, okay, that's a little too complicated for us. So I'm going to figure out something that's a little bit more simplified, but still effective. So I had Rick open up the show with so um the people started looking and they started coming closer you know this is after we did the rehearsal with the with the song and when we played that friday the people came in and people started coming closer and and uh, i had gotten to know some of the names and some of the faces they didn't know me but I, I got to know them through watching Chuck Brown. So I was on the mic and uh, calling some people names out, especially the kids going out there, Steady Eddie and Corn Flakes, and they had all kinds of crazy names back then. And, um, and I guess they was one like, how in the hell do you know me? And it's like, but then they started writing names down on the paper and giving them to me, right? <laughs> so then they wanted me to call because back then, if you call names, that means you were somebody. You were somebody popular. If, if, if the band, if the lead singer over in, in, in the band called your name, you know what I'm saying, it just makes you a popular person. You know what I'm saying? So uh, that's what I learned from Chuck. But the thing is, when we actually got them people there dancing, by this time, let's see, I think it was around 70, about 78. About seventy eight, um, seventy seven. Chuck Brown started working on Busting Loose. Okay, it hadn't been released yet, but he was playing it, and the people was going crazy on that joint. So we already knew it was going to be a hit. Mm-hmm. You know, um, um, uh, um. So so, Chuck came in one day, and after the show, he was like. I don't want the boys playing with me no more. They're trying to steal my music. <laughs> so, so by then, Chuck had got a record deal, and he was getting ready to go on tour anyway. You know, I, I'm skipping. I'm skipping through a lot of stuff because you know I know we ain't got. It probably took about about a week to tell this story in its entirety. But <laughs> but I'm trying to get to the good parts. You know. So anyway, Chuck told Ted that, man, he didn't want us opening up for him anymore because we were trying to steal his music. We weren't trying to steal his music. We took the concept of the beat that he had because there was no go-go music. There was no actual go-go music until Trouble came on the scene. 
And if you go back and 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 check that history, it's like Trouble Punk recorded the first official live Go Go album, straight up Funk Go Go style. Now every everybody else was after that. Chuck Brown did one. It was after that. EU did one. It was after that. Rare Essence did one. It was after that. Everybody that ever recorded a live Go Go album was after Trouble Funk. You know what I'm saying? Um, Trouble Funk became trendsetters because we introduced a whole bunch of other percussions. You know what I'm saying? To to create and 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 build the Go Go sound. So I guess you can actually say Chuck Brown planted that seed, that Go Go seed. And I always give him his props. I mean, he if it wasn't for Chuck, we probably wouldn't have nothing to build on. Mm-hmm. But Trouble Funk took it to the next level. You know what I'm saying? Chuck Brown came up with the go-go beat. Trouble Funk came up with the go-go music to go with that beat. So then right now to this day, Trouble Funk has the most biggest and you know, the, 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 the biggest original catalog, go-go catalog out of all groups. You know what I'm saying? And of course, I'm gonna tell you this, but you know, we're like the most sampled go-go band, probably the most sampled band, one of the most sampled groups in go-go history or hip hop is to be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Everybody in their mama uh sampled uh pump me up. <laughs> yeah. I can name at least fifty groups that you're familiar with if I think hard enough. <laughs> but you know, you got public enemy, guy, um, Beastie Boys, um, uh KRS one. I, I could go on and on and on man, you yeah, know. Yeah. It's like, yeah, uh, everybody everybody wanted a piece of trouble farm, you know, but that was the turning point right there at the Club to Burn. Um, and when Chuck Brown went on tour, when Chuck Brown went on tour, then we basically just took over the city, you know. So that's 78? Yeah, yeah, 78, 79. 79 is when we released E-Flat Boogie. Now, the story behind E-Flat Boogie, um, we was playing Bustin' Loose. When Chuck left, we would play Bustin' Loose. And when I was trying to learn Bustin' Loose, it's like, I could not get the right key because it's like, it sounded like it was in E, but it wasn't matching up. So um, I tried tuning my guitar down to E-Flat. And that's, that's when I realized that Buster Loose was laid in E flat. So that Buster Loose actually inspired me to create E flat boogie. That's why I call it E flat boogie because Buster Loose was in E flat. Mm. So I came up with E flat boogie because that that low E flat was funkier than the E. And at the time we all had four strings. So it's like to get lower, you had to tune the, the E string down. So E Flat Boogie was our first hit record, you know, our first official hit record, you know what I'm saying? And, and I wouldn't even just like just like Bustin' Loose, I wouldn't even call it um I wouldn't call E Flat Boogie or Bustin' Loose um Go Go. It had Go Go ingredients, but it was more, more funk. Like more funk. Yeah. Yeah. More yeah, regular it funk. It was more like funk. Uh, with go-go ingredients, you yeah. know, or co- commercial go-go, if you will. 
You know what I'm saying? Like 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 um like Jill Scott, the thing that she did. That's commercial go go. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Now a lot of people don't even know the difference between commercial go go and just raw go go. The only way you can experience real go go is got to be live. And real go go for some some places throughout the world, it's it's great live, but it's hard to digest. It's hard to digest on on a regular formatted radio station. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. But Real Gogo is one of the greatest experiences you can ever, 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 ever with the white band. <laughs> Experience. You know what I'm saying? What, what um, were the size of those crowds like uh, in the 78 era when you were doing that? I'll say it again. What, what were the sizes of the crowds like you were playing to in that 78 oh, man. era? Um, man, we had crowds like anywhere from a thousand, thousand people men to. 22,000. Like the Capitol Center hold like 20, 21, 22,000 people. Well, technically they hold 18,000. But, you know, they packed them in. They packed them in. They got 21, 22,000 up in there, you know. Um, uh, so we, we were the first group. Um, I believe we were the first group. Don't don't quote me on that. Uh, I gotta go back and, and I, even we were the first or the second group uh, to perform at the at the Capitol Center. Um, I think Chuck came in after. I I I, I don't I don't quite remember, but yeah, you know, I think Chuck came. But I do know we were the first group to headline the Capitol Center. It was the first go-go group to headline the Capitol Center. And that was 79 or later? That was back 79, 80, yeah. Yeah. Yep. Uh, did you feel comfortable being an MC? Uh, I felt comfortable being an entertainer. Because I did, you know, I did it all, you know what I'm saying? You know, um, I, I um, you know, I'm not a singer, I'm not a rapper, I'm not mad, I'm an entertainer. I can do it all, you know. Um, I'm a musician. I'm a musician first, you know. And the thing is, is that uh, I'm going to eat. In the words of Chuck Brown, I'm, you know, I'm going to eat. I'm going to do whatever I got to do to eat. And if it means I got to talk to you to eat, then I'm going to talk to you. You know what I'm saying? So, <laughs> but my, my, my musical talents is far more beyond being a uh, 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 MC or, or as they would say um, in the go-go in, in the go-go um, uh, community uh, number one man number one mic man <laughs> you know that's that's go-go talk right there it so, sounds like you know, almost I, like uh, reggae talk to me yeah so you know, and, you know I guess with, 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 with new styles and music you come up with your you know with your own interpretations of who and what you do you know what I'm saying like um, the way I came up is either, either you're a bass player or you're not a bass player. Either you're a Congo player or you're not a Congo player. Be a drummer or you're not a drummer. You know, either you're a singer or a rapper or you're not. It's like with Gogo, you gotta, you know, hey man, I'm the number, I'm the number one mic man. I'm the number two. I'm the number five. Uh, I'm a Gogo Congo player. No, you Congo player. You know what I'm saying? 
You know, Trouble Funk is a funk group that just happened to play Go-Go. When, when did the name change? Man, I'm glad you asked me that. Um, that's another interesting story. Um, so when we, when we started building up a really good crowd and E-Flat Boogie came out, um, Max Kidd took over the song and, yeah, he did some wonderful things with it. And um, I think we went to we went to Chuck Lambert's man, and um, he took something like fifty thousand dollars, man, to love Chuck Chuck Lambert, and just told us to get all the instruments that we need to, you know, to to do a better job. Now, and get the best. So, man, we we got we got a B three, we got a Hammond B three. Um, I was the first kid on the block. With um, with an Olympic bass guitar, you know what I'm saying? It's like that joint right there was like the Rolls Royce of guitars, you know. And I always wanted one because I always seen Stanley Clark with one, and I got the one just like Stanley had, you know. And that bass is, is, is magical, man. It just it just made me so much better, you know. I developed this style called percussion bass, you know. And percussion drag bass. So it's like uh, I would play percussion on my bass with the drummer. When the drummer's playing the pocket, do stack, do do stack, and I have my bass, you know, you know, uh, just plucking, not me hitting notes, but just making percussion sounds. And every now and then I go, that was called drag bass. So all these new, the, the new generation. They're doing this stuff and not even realizing that, you know, this ain't new. I've been doing this in the 70s. You know what I'm saying? So um, I developed my own unique style. And as a, as a result of that, I mean, Trouble Funk, we just developed a whole new style of go-go music, which is, again, it's just um, go-go is just another brand of funk. You know what I'm saying? Um, it all originated. All these styles originated from funk soul, you know what I'm saying? Um, and um, our brand of go-go is just totally different from everybody else's. Now, you had four groups back then, four groups, and um, and then later on, Jump came, but you had like the, the, what we call the big four. You had Trouble, Chuck, EU, and Red Essence, and back then, we all had our own unique, distinct sound. You know, we all had our own unique, distinct sound. And you can tell the difference easy. You ain't got to hear the lead man at all. You know, you can hear the music, you know what I'm saying, and just know who, what band is what. Now it's like with, this, with the music, that the, the, the style of go-go music we have now, um, because everybody's playing the same thing, it's hard to tell who's who, you know, until you hear somebody's voice. And some of the bands, some of the, some of the lead guys, you know, they even sound similar, you know what I'm saying? So, um, that, that changed a lot, but, uh, again, um, I just think just like all the old, old school music back in the day. I think those were like the golden days, man. You know what I'm saying? Definitely, yeah. Yeah. 
<laughs> I definitely think those were the golden days. Uh, now everything is just like it's like instant coffee. You know, everything is just so instant. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And it 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 it, it dies down just like that. It comes instantly and it dies instantly. You know, I'm grateful that Trevor Funk was a part of that '80s era because that's that that was you know you still had classic music back then. Yep. You know what I'm saying? You know, you was there was still a such thing as a classic after the '80s and maybe the early '90s. You know, I don't think there ever be any more classic songs. You know what I'm saying? Songs that would stand the test of time. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like your like your Parliaments, your James Browns, and your you know the Sly Stones, and you know, um, you know, people of that genre. Yeah, know? well, Prince helped keep it alive to me, but yeah, 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 we're well, definitely Prince. Yeah, yes, yeah, Prince definitely helped keep it alive. But again, man, you know. Um, I, I wonder. It's like, where where is this thing going to go when, you know, all of us all of us guys are no longer able to do it or even around? It's yeah. like, you know, it, it makes me wonder. It's like, and we're working on a new album now, and uh, um, it's I've been working on this album for about three years now because I definitely want to make a statement. You know what I'm saying? It ain't over until it's over. Um. I want this album to be very special. Um, so, unfortunately, I was in the studio when when this accident happened. So that kind of slowed me down a little bit. Uh, but I got a new album coming out. It's called Trouble Funk: The Rebirth. And I got some uh, I got some real serious guests on there. I can't really name them because they haven't been signed. You know delivered and I don't think they really want to put that out there right now but I got some really really great guests yeah well I can't name one um we're doing a collaboration with Dave Grump yeah I can't name the others right now because you know that's you know that I mean Dave Gordon already you know said that that was going to happen we're going to make it happen it's just a matter of yeah, he's on the world tour right now. Yeah, he's on the yeah, world well, tour. Yeah, well, I heard he so. was a fan, so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, you know, Dave, Dave used to open up. He was with, I forgot the name of the band, but, you know, back then when he was about 16 years old, uh, he used to open up for us. Before Nirvana, uh, huh? Yeah, 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 before, yeah, long before the end, yeah. Uh, he used to open up for us. I forgot the name of the band. Was it uh, Scream? It was some one of those little punk rock bands, you know. And uh, and he came back, man. He's like he always said that he always told me, "Man, you guys influenced me to to play music as well as I play." And you know, and he came back and showed his love, man. That's real love, man. It's like uh, we're supposed to be doing something with him on July fourth, and. Uh, I know he's coming to DC July 4th. Only thing he did me, he texted me and said, keep July 4th open. So <laughs> I said, you, you got to say no more, done deal. <laughs> he said, don't book July 4th. So I said, cool, not a problem. Well, we definitely look forward to that. I can't wait. Um, yeah, 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 me too.
But um, I, I still got some yeah. questions for you, though. Sure, man. I, I hope I got some answers. Yeah. Well, who is there any one person that you know of that coined Go-Go as the genre? Is there any one person? Yeah, how did the name Go-Go get put on that music? Well, okay. I, I, actually, Go-Go go -Go started out as uh, a place to go. It wasn't. It had nothing to do with music. Go go was an atmosphere, and that 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 actual name originated from Smokey Robinson going to a going go go. To a go, -go. Yeah, yeah. We just took that name and gave it a different interpretation. You know what I'm saying? Uh, going to the go go was like, okay, man, what you gonna do tonight? Oh, I'm going to the go go to see Chuck Brown and Soul Searchers. So. That, that that was just another name for whatever club he was going to. That atmosphere was a go-go atmosphere. So basically, um, that's where the name originated from. Um, that song, Smokey Robinson did go to a go-go. Uh, now, I think his go-go back then was was, was the, what they call now strip clubs. You know? <laughs> Yeah, um, is I think back then they called go go the you know the you know go go dancers you know what I'm saying female go go dancers. I remember they had go go yeah. boots. That was a big fat. Yeah, 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 and uh, and like I said, he had go go dancers at the club. You know, that wore the go go boots. Yeah, yeah. Uh, pretty much. Yeah, not a lot, not a lot. Not else but the go go boots, and you know, um, but uh, like I said, you know, somehow, some way, you know, and I can't honestly say I know who claimed it, you know, what I'm saying, um, um, I do know Chuck Brown created the go go beat, mm -hmm. you know, and the story behind that was Chuck Brown took that go go beat. <laughs> Um, which actually came from the church. It was a lot faster. Uh, but he actually took a, well, well, uh, Global Washington took that beat from the church, slowed it down, and, uh, and did the uh, Mr. Magic. Um, Chuck Brown took Mr. Magic strip the music off it and put some congos on it and call it a go-go beat hmm. you know what i'm saying trouble funk came along um we put more percussion to it we modified it changed it and created a variety of different go-go beats yeah and we let the other bands know because all the other bands was like, I don't know. I, I, I don't know if they was like scared to step in that arena or whatever. But Trouble Funk, we showed them how easy it was to do that. And it wasn't that it was easy. We worked hard to make it look easy. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? We worked very hard to make it look easy. But um, that's how we became the innovators of a lot of, a lot of stuff when it comes to go-go music, you know what I'm saying?
Let me ask you how your your first album, Drop the Bomb, was on Sugar Hill Records, which was the big hip hop rap, old school rap label. Um, how did you get that uh, record deal? And what do you remember about making that, that record? Well, uh, what's up in the beginning? Um, how that record came about was crazy. It was crazy, man. Um, I was actually late for a show when that, when that song actually was created. I was running late for a, for a show. And um, we was playing at some rec center, some rec center uh, um, in Maryland. And um, I was running like maybe 45 minutes behind. So the band had to start up without me. And the band was like just grooving. And Dyke was on the, on the synthesizer making all these little crazy sounds. And um, and I was as I was walking through the crowd, I heard Dyke doing this little sound. And the crowd was going, drop the bomb, drop the bomb. Here. And they're going to drop the bomb. So I'm hooking up my guitar. Wow, that's nice right there. I'm hooking up my guitar and I'm trying to get ready. So immediately I walked up to the... Um, to the mic and I was like, you want to drop the bomb? You want to drop the bomb? Yeah. So then I go, drop the bomb, drop the bomb. And I can add another little part. And everybody in the audience doing like this. You know what I'm saying? I was like, wow. And pretty much the audience helped, you know, create that song. Yeah. And um, we realized that we had something so we took it back to rehearsal and it's like, man, we got to put a groove to this job. And that's when Dyke came up with that. Actually, James came up with that groove, that that little part, that little part right there. Yeah. And it was like a real percussive type of feel on the bass. Yeah. And um, Ricky had that funky beat on that. Do stack do do Originality, our own original spin on a lot of stuff, you know, because they say music is just a vicious cycle anyway, you know. Um, so we just a lot of stuff that came out like if we saw a hit record and it's like, okay, well, we got to figure out a way to do this because this is hot, we got to figure out a way to do this our way. Like when Planet Rock was out, that do do that real upbeat thing, you know, Planet Rock and um. That, you know, the African Bambada and all that little fast, you know, tempo, um, uh, what do we call it? Uh, electro type of Right. So that was real hot for a minute. So we had to figure out a way to capitalize on that. So that's when we came up with the group called Arcade Funk. Till. You know what I'm saying? So uh, it was just me, Dyke, and... Me, Dyke, James, and the percussion. We went up in that joint, and um, Dyke and I, we we went to arcade. Back then, the arcade games was real, real popular. 
So we would go, we would go record sounds from the arcade, and then come back and try to reproduce them on the synthesizers. Yeah, like that. That's man. How, yeah. Right. That's how arcade funk came about. Yeah, and that was a big song. Yeah, but the the experience with Sugar Hill, we didn't get no money out of that. Um, but we we you know they they we got a lot of notoriety. You know, the people, they, uh, you know, um, they played a big part in, of, of Trouble Phone getting out there and the people uh, getting to know who we are and what we do. Um, what was it like for you uh, recording in a studio after all that live experience? Uh, well, again, um, um, it, like, it, was, it was very natural. It was very natural. We had... You know, we had always we did some recording in studios, but um, I think it was like little Ricky Dean studios. And when we actually got a chance to record in a really good studio, and be, after being in those little small Ricky Dean studios, um, it just made everything that much easier. You know what I'm saying? Now you're recording with people that really know what they're doing. Like our first major recording experience was Sigma Sound in Philly. That's what we recorded. Um, that's what we recorded, like E flat boogie, and a slow song called "Don't Try to Use Me." And uh, we did the vocals to pump me up uh, there. Uh, we did. A, uh, there was another studio recorded. We recorded out of um, in Virginia called Bias. As a matter of fact, I'm back there at Bias now. Um, recording some of a lot of the new album, hmm. and uh, because a lot of a lot of studios now they don't have they don't have tape anymore, and I like tape. I, I like recording on tape now for 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 editing purposes and and out gear and all that stuff there. You know, virtual plug plugins. Yes, it's okay to bounce down to digital. But you got to get that initial sound on that tape because it's something about that sound on tape, man. That you know, what I'm saying it's, it's just it's just fat, it's warm, and it's raw. You know, uh, that analog you can't beat it, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, but yeah, um, we we um, we we went into a, a real big um, legal battle with Sugar Hill, and um, and believe it or not, we're still trying to get the rights back to a lot of our music, you know, um, between Sugar Hill and Tough City um, and Max Kidd, may rest in peace. But, you know, it's like we were kids back then, man. You know, it's like we didn't know. And Rio was the manager, and we pretty much relied on him to protect us. And... We got we got the bad you know we we got a bad the bad end of the of the deal you know back then man so again we still trying to, there's monies out there that still belong to us that we we're not recouping now that we can't so um, I'm hoping you know this interview reaches one of those really great lawyers that wanted tickets on pro bono <laughs> there's a lot of money in there we can get this catalog back. Just yeah. saying, yeah, yeah, you know, but uh, 
I hope but, so. Uh, yeah, man, you, we got a really big catalog, and like, it, you know, this catalog would never die. It's gonna always make money because we was fortunate to be in that category of what they call evergreens. You know what I'm saying? Um, do, do you uh, right think, now, do you think you know, drop? Do you think drop the bomb uh, influenced the Gap bands? You dropped the bomb on me. Oh hell yeah! Yeah, yeah. hell yeah! Uh, here's the deal. Here's the deal. Okay, Max Kidd tried to get us. Follow me now. Max Kidd tried to get us to do another version, an R&B version of Drop the Bomb. And it's like, you know, we argued. It's like, man, look, that's that's not trouble. That's that's not our style, you know. And he's like, but the record is real big, and it'd be bigger if you can do a crossover version, you know, blah blah blah. And he had a point there, but it just it just wasn't our image. So he pitched it. He was promoting for, I think it was Interscope Records. I think that's the our label Gap Band was on at the time. Total Experience. Total Experience, okay. Well, anyway, he was promoting for that label. Hmm. And he pitched it to that label. Hmm. Yeah. He pitched it to that label. All right. That's pretty clear. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's obvious. If you listen to it, it's obvious. You got, you got the little generic bomb in the background, you took the bomb on me, little cute bomb in the back, you know. Yeah, yeah. But, <laughs> but it worked for what they did, and yeah, if we would have did it, it probably would have worked for us, but again, it just, it, it just wasn't our style, you know. It just wasn't our style. Get On Up was a hot groove also. Yeah, Get On Up, and I tell you, another, another concept, they took, uh, we had a song called so early in the morning. Oh, really? So early, so early, so early in the morning. Yeah, another gap band. Gap band got that one. So I got to get up early in the morning. Yeah. And I think Robert Palmer redid it, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, and Robert Palmer, believe it or not, is a big trouble fan. Hmm. Yeah. As a matter of fact, we, um, we did... Um, he's a really cool cat, by the way, man. Really nice cat, man. I met him personally. And we did Island Records 25th anniversary when we was over in the UK. So you had Robert Palmer. You had all the all the heavyweights there. You know what I'm saying? Um, we did a, we did a song with Sly and Robbie, and um, um, it was like it was so long ago. I can't remember everybody that was there. But it was like all of the major artists that was on Island Records. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That was a great experience. Yeah, sounds great. Uh, 